Sean Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Last time we covered two corrected corruptions, 1 Timothy 3.16 and 1 John 5.7. This time we'll consider two uncorrected corruptions, including the long ending on Mark and the passage about the adulterous woman that Jesus saves. Although these two texts are not found in the earliest and best manuscript, and translators have known this for decades, they continue to include them in virtually all English translations. What's going on here? In this episode, you'll learn the textual basis of both passages and the reasons why textual scholars don't accept their authenticity. Here now is episode 341, part 12 of our Bible class, Two Uncorrected Corruptions. I want to begin by asking you a question about the importance of honesty. Do you want to know the truth? Church historian Jaroslav Pelikan once said, Tradition is the living faith of the dead. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. I fear with respect to this particular issue, the latter sentiment lives on in virtually all of our English translations today. Tradition can be a good thing. Tradition can be a bad thing. The question is, is the tradition faithful to the facts of the matter? And if it is, and it's faithfully been passed down generation by generation, then that's a good thing. But if tradition that's passed down generation after generation is more like the telephone game where things got corrupted over time or added in or distorted, then really what we want is to go back to the original message and get the correct understanding. So this actually reminds me of a scene from a movie. I know probably a number of you have seen this. This is the movie The Matrix where Morpheus presents Neo with a choice between the blue pill and the red pill. And if he took the blue pill, he would remain blissfully ignorant. And if he took the red pill, he would learn the truth about the way the world really is. What about you? You want to take the red pill today? Um, And I, (laughs) I say this because I know that some of you are going to be upset when you see what it is that I'm suggesting. But yet, what do you want me to do? I can't change the facts of the matter. It is what it is. The the manuscripts read the way they read, and I'll be honest, translators are not being honest with you, by and large, when it comes to these two sections. I mean, generally they're being honest with you, but when it comes to these texts, um, there's, there's a lot of issues that we need to talk about. So let's begin with Mark 16. In most versions, there are 20 verses. I mean, you want to go ahead and pull out your Bible, you can look at it yourself. Mark chapter 16 typically has 20 verses in it, uh, but there are actually four versions of the ending of the Gospel of Mark. Everyone agrees on verses 1 through 8. There's no question there whatsoever. It's a question of, after verse 8, is it verses 9 through 20? Is it some other variation? And so what I want to do is show you all four of these versions. And this is going to take a little bit of reading, but I think it'll be worth your while to do it. Number one, version one, of Mark 16 verse 8 reads as follows, And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. This is how Aleph and B both read. That's Codices Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, our two most important unsealed witnesses. Sadly, this text 
is not represented in the papyri. So we can't even go there to look at what they say on Mark chapter 16. And both of these codices are from the 4th century, around the year 350. And flip a coin as to which one you think is earlier. Next version is a little bit different. And we find this version in the 7th century in codices LC0830990112 and minuscule 579. And that reads as follows. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. But they reported briefly to Peter and those with him all that they had been told. And after this, Jesus himself sent out by means of them from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. So what I just read to you is the same exact verse 8, but then I added in a verse 9 that differs from what most translations today have although I bet you might have this reading in your footnotes. This is version 2, and it has some significant manuscript evidence supporting it from the 7th century onwards. Then we have version 3, which is only found in one manuscript, Codex Washingtonianus, or also called W, from the 5th century, which is a pretty early century for codices. Uh, unseals. All right, this is version three. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had it seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now when he arose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him, as they mourned and wept. And when they had heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them, as they were walking into the country. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table and rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. And they excused themselves, saying, This age of lawlessness and unbelief is under Satan, who does not allow the truth and power of God to prevail over the unclean things of the spirits. Therefore, reveal your righteousness now. Thus they spoke to Christ. And Christ replied to them, the term of years of Satan's power has been fulfilled, but other terrible things draw near. For those who have sinned, I was handed over to death, that they may return to the truth and sin no more, in order that they may inherit the spiritual and incorruptible glory of righteousness that is in heaven. I told you it was a bit of a lengthy quote, but uh, once again, I think it is worthwhile for you to hear what the, you know the full flavor of the passage. Now, the, for version three here that I just read, most of it is actually the same as what you see in most Bibles today in the beginning part, but then the end part where you handle snakes and drink poison, it's gone, right? And other words are substituted. Now, there's nothing heretical about this ending. It's just different. Then we have version 4. Version 4, once again, has the same verse 8 as the other ones. And then in verse 9, we read, now when he rose on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons. This is the same as version 3. She went and told those who had been with him, and they mourned and wept. But when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they would not believe it. After these things, he appeared in another form to two of them as they were walking into the country, as recorded in the Gospel of Luke. And they went back and told the rest, but they did not believe them. Afterward, he appeared to the eleven themselves as they were reclining at table. And he rebuked them for their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they had not believed those who saw him after he had risen. Now it deviates from version 3. 
Version 4 says, And he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up serpents with their hands. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not hurt them. They will lay their hands on the sick. They will recover. Verse 19, So then the Lord Jesus, after he had spoken to them, was taken up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere while the Lord worked with them, confirmed the message by accompanying signs. Now, what's interesting about version 4 is the broad manuscript support that it has, starting with A and C. As you recall, A is Alexandrinus and C is Ephraim Rescriptus. Then we have D, which is not all that reliable, but it's still there. K, W, X, Velta, Theta, P, C, 0990112, Family 13, 28, and 33. That's a lot of manuscript support, and it's fairly early. It starts with the 5th century. We're not talking about some like late medieval corruption that came in. If this is a corruption, it's a corruption that entered into the manuscripts as early as the 5th century. So what do we make of this? Well, here's a little table that show, summarizes the manuscript support for the four different versions. And we can see that for version 1, we have Aleph and B supporting it from the 4th century. For version 2, we have 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6 manuscripts supporting it from the 7th century onwards. For version 3, just one manuscript from the 5th century. In manuscript 4, we have tons of manuscripts, but no earlier than the 5th century. I also want to add in that for version 1, there are ancient translations, including Latin, Syriac, Armenian, and Georgian, that also have Mark ending at verse 8. So before we make a decision on external evidence, which we've just looked at, let's consider the internal evidence as well. Now this harkens back to a couple episodes ago where I went through the process of textual criticism. If you haven't yet watched that, this would be a good time to pause and go back and watch that episode, which I believe would be episode 10, uh, to see the process of textual criticism so you, you're a little more aware of what, what it is we're doing here. So we have the external evidence of the manuscripts. Now we're going to look at the internal evidence and consider that. Now, the first version, as far as internal evidence goes, uh, gets all the gold stars because it's the shortest reading, and that was one of our criteria of authenticity, is that shorter reading is preferred over a long, longer reading. And you don't have any issues with vocabulary deviating from Mark's usual style like we have with the second version, for example. The second version has a high percentage of non-Markan words, words that are not used by Mark in any other part of his gospel. Also, the tone is different in the second version than the rest of the gospel of Mark. The third version, of course, is only found in one manuscript. How many manuscripts do we have? over 5,000. <laughs> it's only in one manuscript. It's very unlikely to have been original, but that's external evidence. The internal reason, once again, is that it has several words that Mark just never uses anywhere else in his gospel. And then the fourth version has tons of attestation, tons of witnesses, tons of manuscripts, uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean, because this is not a, a matter of counting manuscripts, we want to weigh manuscripts, which ones are generally considered accurate and best, not just what's the majority vote. Uh, if we go with just the majority vote, whatever ends up being the later 
tradition is going to win because later on we have more copies than early on because paper perishes over time, even if it's papyrus, parchment, whatever. So our evidence is, is smaller as we go back in time. So we're not counting, we're weighing. But let's look at the internal considerations for the fourth version, the version that is in most of our Bibles. Well, first of all, the vocabulary is different than Mark anywhere else. Second of all, there's a sudden change in subject from women in verse 8 to Jesus in verse 9. Third of all, verse 9 reintroduces Mary Magdalene, even though she had been already been introduced in verse 1. It seems like what we had was a narrative from verses 1 through 8, and then a new unit added on to the end of it that doesn't organically fit with the flow. And you have to judge this yourself. Go ahead and, if you want to pause this, go ahead and read it yourself and see if you spot these little, uh, maybe you would call it a seam in the text, these little indications of a seam in the text. The vocabulary is different. The subject changes from verse 8 to verse 9. And then Mary Magdalene gets reintroduced, which is also strange. Uh, so only the shortest version, last of all, can explain the existence of the other three. Now, why do I say that? Well, look, if version 4 was original, who would ever get rid of it? It's awesome, right? I mean, version 4 rocks. I, I think that's probably why it dominated the manuscripts. It just so uh, nicely lands the plane, as I like to say. You know, it just wraps everything up in a nice bow. And, you know, it has not only the uh, discovery of the empty tomb, which is what the shorter version has, but it also has... Uh, Jesus appearing to more people, it pulls in material from Luke, it ends with an ascension. I mean, it's just, it's just beautiful. I mean, nobody would get rid of that if that's what we had to start with. Um, and version two is, is kind of, uh, uh, that's the, the shorter ending that just kind of like has a little summary statement. It's, it's very pale in comparison, but you can understand why somebody would feel the need to put version two in if the original had a cliffhanger ending. Not everyone appreciates, I'll be the first one to admit it, not everyone appreciates a cliffhanger ending. That's an ending of a movie or a book or a short story where suddenly the narrative just ends and, and you don't get the conclusion that we find so satisfying. And that seems to be what we had in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts of the Gospel of Mark. Verse 8, they went out and they were afraid and they didn't tell anyone. What kind of an ending is that? But yet, that seems to be, based on external and internal evidence, the best uh, reading of this. The NET can explain a little bit more for us. They write, There are three possible explanations for Mark ending at chapter 16, verse 8. The author, number one, the author intentionally ended the gospel here in an open-ended fashion. So that's, that's what I'm calling the cliffhanger, open-ended fashion, right? Number two, the gospel was never finished. Can you imagine that? The gospel was never finished. Or number three, the last leaf of the manuscript was lost prior to copying. This first explanation is the most likely due to several factors, including A, the probability that the gospel was originally written on a scroll rather than a codex. Only on a codex would the last leaf get lost prior to copying. B, the unlikelihood of the manuscript not being completed. And C, the literary power of ending the gospel so abruptly that the readers are now drawn into the story itself. The readers must now ask themselves, what will I do with Jesus? If I do not accept him in his suffering, I will not see him in his glory. So here's the, here's the question. 
What does your Bible say? Take a look at it. I bet, I mean, Bibles do this differently, but I bet your Bible either has a footnote or brackets around verses 9 through 20, or some of the the newer versions are now interrupting the text itself and writing in capital letters, earliest manuscripts do not contain these verses, but then they still put the verses in. What in the world is going on here? For example, I just read to you from the NAT. The NAT Bible, the NET Bible, uh, which I think I mistakenly said was from 1996. It's from 2005, by the way, and uh, they did an update in 2017. So I don't want to give the impression that it's hopelessly outdated or anything like that. It's, it's a very good resource for you to use, especially if you don't have uh, Hebrew and Greek knowledge, because it does everything in English. It'll quote Greek or Hebrew, but then spell it out in English letters as well. Uh, anyhow, back to this. The NET Bible just argued that Mark 16 should end at verse 8. That's what I just read to you. However, if you have a net Bible and you look up in there, Mark chapter 16, you know what you're going to find? Verses 9 through 20. What in the world is going on here? Uh, so we're going to return to this question, why they keep printing stuff they know doesn't belong in there in just a minute. But let's pivot now to look at our second text for today, John 7, 53 through 811. Here is that text from the New International Version. Then they all went home. That's John 7, 53, 8, 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time. The older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. This story, this passage, this account of the woman caught in adultery that Jesus says uh, in the Old English, he that is without a sin cast the first stone, right? It's just so beloved. It's so loved by movie makers, by preachers, by readers of all different types. I was thinking of Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, which you may have seen. Now here's a movie, it's about the death of Christ, his suffering and his death, arrest, trial, suffering, death. And there's a little scene of his resurrection at the very end, right? It's the best part, in my opinion. Um, and they couldn't help but slip this uh, incident with the adulterous woman in there as a flashback. And it was just so, uh, cinematography was, was so cool with the writing in the ground and all this dust spraying out into the air as his finger went in the ground and there's the woman and oh gosh, it's so great. However, here's the problem. It's missing from the papyri. We do have John chapter eight in the papyri, P66 and P75, and it's not there. It's missing 
from a staggering range of unseals. Not only Aleph and B, but also L, N, T, W, X, Y, so like an alphabet soup here. Uh, Delta, Theta, Psi, 0141 and 0211. It's also missing from minuscules 22, 33, 124, and 157. And it's missing from the oldest Syriac, the Coptic versions, the Sahidic and Baharic Coptic, and some Georgian, Armenian, and Gothic manuscripts, as well as church fathers. No one quotes it until Euthymius Zagabinus in the 12th century. I mean, ladies and gentlemen, this is a text that's just not there early on, and then it shows up later on. So it's what we call a corruption or an addition to the Bible. Now, check, check this out. Not only does it not show up in the oldest manuscripts, but when it does show up, it moves around. Sometimes it's in John, sometimes it's in Luke. It's in different places in John. Let me show you the evidence for this. Um, we have a number of manuscripts, about a dozen, where it shows up in its traditional location John, after John 752. However, we have a minuscule where it shows up after John 736. We have several Georgian translations where it shows up after John 744. And a number of minuscules, about half a dozen, where it shows up after John 21, 25, totally different chapter. And then family 13 of manuscripts, which includes over a dozen manuscripts at this point, have it in Luke 21, 38. So that is evidence that this is a floating text. It's not original to the Gospel of John. That's the external evidence. Let's look at the internal evidence. As far as the vocabulary goes, the vocabulary for these verses between 753 and 811 is different than the Gospel of John or other Johannine literature like the Epistles. Second of all, it interrupts the flow of the text. Go ahead and read it. Start at verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 52, and go to chapter 8, verse 12, and tell me what you think. It flows just fine, right? So this is also an indication that this is an addition. But if there's such great evidence against the story of the adulterous woman um, that Jesus set free, why in the world does every, and I'm telling you, I have never seen one, I hope there is an English Bible out there that doesn't have it, but I have personally never seen one. Why does every English Bible have this in it? Daniel Wallace explains, quote, even, even though most translators would probably deny John 7:53 to 8:11 a place in the canon, a place in the Bible, virtually every translation of the Bible has this text in its traditional location. There is, of course, a marginal note in modern translations that says something like, most ancient authorities lack these verses, but such a weak and ambiguous statement is generally ignored by readers of Holy Writ. It's ambiguous because many readers might assume that in spite of the ancient authorities, whatever that means, that lack the passage, the translators felt it must be authentic. I mean, obviously they put it in, right? Wallace continues, how then has this passage made it into modern translations? In a word, there's been a long-standing tradition of timidity among translators. I mean, that is a bold statement. He continues, One 20th century Bible relegated the passage to the footnotes, but when the sales were rather lackluster, it again found its place in John's Gospel. Even the NET Bible, for which I am the senior New Testament editor, has put the text in its traditional place. But the NET Bible also has a lengthy footnote 
explaining the textual complications and doubts about its authenticity. And, this is hysterical, the font size is smaller than normal so that it will be harder to read from the pulpit. But we nevertheless made the same concession that others translators have about this text by leaving it in situ, which is Latin for in place. So this text is an addition. It's a corruption of the Gospel of John. It very well could have been a historical event, don't get me wrong. It's very possible that this actually happened, but it's also as certain as we can be that it's not original to the Gospel of John, that wherever this account came from, it's not, it doesn't belong in John. So what's going on here? Publishers keep putting it in the Bible. Now Wallace suggested one reason why is money. I think we have to admit that money is part of the picture when it comes to publishing. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, if somebody's going to back a translation and nobody buys it, you're going to have problems. So, but then there's another issue related to the King James only movement, which flourishes in some parts of the United States where people are saying, oh, these modern translations are getting rid of this verse and that verse and so on. And we're going we're gonna to come back to the King James Version and some of these statements that get made about getting rid of verses in a, in a subsequent episode. But uh, let's just look at it from the perspective, a business perspective of the publisher. They're like, all right, we're having a hard enough time selling our Bibles in this part of the country with the story of the adulterous woman in it. If we take that out, I mean, <laughs> these people are going to have a field day. Uh, so you can see, hypothetically, why maybe publishers are leaving this in. But here's what I find so amazing about Wallace's admission that we just read here. It's not that he blames sales or that he nails translators for being timid. I think that's great. Um, but what I find so amazing about Wallace's statement that we just read is that even though he definitively showed that this story, this scripture, is not part of the Gospel of John, and he was the New Testament, not just the New Testament editor, no, 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 he wasn't just a lowly translator, he was the senior New Testament editor. That's like the person that makes these kinds of decisions. He, he, his voice was still trumped by others on the committee such that they were forced to keep it into the Net Bible, even though the Net Bible itself says this doesn't belong here. That is so disturbing to me. Where is the honesty here? This is bad news, not just for the, the Net Bible, but for all English translations that keep printing this over and over again. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you exactly why in just a minute here. But this is an indication of traditionalism trumping the facts of the matter just like that Pelican quote I read to you before. Traditionalism is the dead faith of the living. And that's really what's going on here. We've always printed, everybody loves this story. We couldn't imagine taking this out. That's traditionalism. We need more honesty than that today, wouldn't you say? Now these two texts, Mark 16, 9 through 20, and John 7, 53 to 8, 11, are ripe for exposure by a hostile atheist. Think about it. An atheist comes along and says, oh, your Bible's full of corruptions. 
there's some just honest-hearted Christian. They're like, what are you talking about? My Bible's great. You know, it's got all these manuscripts behind it or, you know, all these scholars that work on it. Or, I mean, I don't know what your average person knows about what's beneath the text. I mean, I guess that's kind of the point of this class, right? And then the atheist comes along and says, yeah, but there are corruptions in there, well-known forgeries that, that are printed in your Bible. And the person's like, no. And then they show them part at the end of Mark and in John chapter 8, and they're right. The atheist is right. The atheist is telling the truth. The atheist is the one being honest, and the Christian is just bowled over by this. In fact, I knew a young man that this happened to at college, and I don't know how much you're aware of uh, how secular universities, non-Christian universities, how they um, are in their Bible classes, but they are typically very hostile in their Bible classes. They teach the Bible as literature, and they teach it from a very skeptical and critical perspective. And this young man went to a local school here in uh, where I live in New York, in the Albany area, and uh, he was confronted with, in fact, these two very forgeries, uh, the end of, end of Mark and the uh, story in John chapter 8. And uh, the atheist professor said, hey, look, your Bible's full of forgeries. Here it is. And then sure enough, he looked in his Bible, he looked at the footnote, he's like, these verses are not in the earliest manuscripts. He's like, my goodness, my Bible is corrupted. And so he lost his faith over that. He lost his faith over, his faith in scripture over that situation, that revelation. Uh, Furthermore, when outspoken critic Bart Ehrman came out with his uh, very well-known book, Misquoting Jesus in 2005, many more became aware of this silent sin. Um, And uh, when this book came out, misquoting Jesus, Bart Ehrman uh, basically just attacked scripture relentlessly, saying it was unreliable, it's got too many variations, and these variations make it so that we just don't even know what the text of scripture is at all. I mean, he totally, as I would see it, overstated the case. Uh, But sales skyrocketed for this book, hit the New York Times bestseller list, and ironically, the same year that Daniel Wallace's NET Bible came out, the official 2005 version, was the same year that Bart Ehrman's Misquoting Jesus book came out, and this is what Wallace had to say about it. Quote, I wrote a critique of Ehrman's book that was published in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society, also known as JETS. There I said, Keeping John 7:53 to 8:11 and Mark 16:9 through 20 in our Bibles, rather than relegating them to the footnotes, seems to have been a bomb just waiting to explode. All Ehrman did was to light the fuse. One lesson we must learn from misquoting Jesus is that those in ministry need to close the gap between the church and the academy. We have to educate believers. Instead of trying to isolate lay people from critical scholarship, we need to insulate them. They need to be ready for the barrage because it is coming. The intentional dumbing down of the church for the sake of filling more pews will ultimately lead to defection from Christ. Ehrman is to be thanked for giving us a wake-up call. Wow, that's really something. So now nearly all translations today at least English translations, that's what, I, that's what I know, English translations, stubbornly continue to include both of these corrupted texts. Now, last time we looked at 1 Timothy 3.16, and we looked at 1 John 5.7, and what I showed you was that almost all translations have gotten rid of those corrupted texts or cor- corrected them, in other words. Um, however, nobody's doing that for these two. 
And what are they saying to themselves? What are these translators saying to themselves? Oh, at least we told the truth in the footnote. Oh, at least we put it in brackets. Oh, at least we put it in a smaller font so that nobody can read it as well from the pulpit. What are we playing games with scripture? Is, is it scripture or is it not scripture? If it's not scripture, take it out of the Bible. Because you know what? You're not taking it out. You're refusing to add it in. It reminds me of uh, the classic scene where you can't handle the truth, right? You remember that from A Few Good Men? So do, do they think that we can't handle the truth? We can handle the truth. That simply won't do anymore. This is the age of information and access and honesty. It's time to tell the truth. Dishonesty has no place in Bible translation. Wouldn't you agree? So next time, we're going to really delve into the process of translation. We've looked at the text of the Old Testament. We've looked at the text of the New Testament in the original Hebrew and Aramaic, and then also in the original Greek. And now we are going to delve into the whole exciting world of English Bible translation and how translators go about doing their work in our effort to understand how we got the Bible. I wonder, what did you think about that? Had you already known this about Mark chapter 16 and John chapter 8? I uh, would love to hear from you. Come on to restitutio.org where you can leave a comment on episode 341, Bible Part 12, to Uncorrected Corruptions, as well as a question, if you have a question. And while you're there, you can check out the show notes for this episode. I've got a number of books and links that you might be interested in. Well, that's it for today. Stay tuned for next time as we get into the exciting world of Bible translation and start laying a foundation for that. Well, that's it for today. If you'd like to support Restitutio, come on over to restitutio.org where you can donate. We'll see you next time, and remember, the truth has nothing to fear.